When I was 15 years old, I was most stressed out about what I was going to be when I grew up and if I should go to college or not. In a lot of ways, I lived a very normal teenage life, and I feel very blessed for that. Today's story is the opposite of what a 15-year-old should be worried about. 15-year-olds should be stressing about school. They should be at sleepovers with friends, playing sports, or spending time with family. Not strategizing how to stay alive from within the apartment of a serial killer. Teenagers are easily misunderstood. They don't usually have things figured out. I sure as heck didn't. I mean, their brains are not even fully developed yet, and people don't give them a lot of credit. But today's story defies that. In fact, it highlights the fact that strength and determination can come at any age and in spite of the darkest and scariest of circumstances, and how important it is to not lose the ability to think critically in life-threatening situations. So let's go back to when you were 15, or if you're still a teenager now, picture yourself at your best friend's house. You both have plans to do something fun later, but before you can go, your friend's mom says that your friend has some chores she needs to finish. Being the good friend that you are, you offer to help, specifically with the outside chores when your friend is inside her house. When you're alone, a car pulls up and a man gets out. He seems friendly. It's broad daylight and you're at a friend's house, so you think nothing of it. But before you can process what he's saying, there's a gun pointed at you and you're being directed into his car. You don't scream and you don't run. You stay calm. Immediately you know that wherever he takes you and whatever happens, you will get free. Joining me today is Kara Robinson-Chamberlain, a serial killer and rape survivor. More importantly, she is a wife and a mother. Let me just tell you, I've heard a lot of amazing survivor stories, but Kara's is definitely in my top three, and I'm not the only one who thinks so either. Recently, Oxygen made an entire documentary movie about Kara's abduction called Escaping Captivity, The Kara Robinson Story. There is a listener discretion is advised warning on this episode for depictions of rape, abuse, and murder. I'm Alex Clark, and this is The Spillover. Kara, take us back to 2002 the day of your abduction, you're 15, what was happening that day? So my friend and I were, I had spent the night at her house. We were getting ready to start our day, trying to figure out what we wanted to do that day. And we decided we wanted to go to the lake. And so we called our friend and we made plans to go over to her house and called her mom, called my friend's mom and asked what did we need to do, if anything, before we left? And she asked us to water the plants out front, the flowers. And so my friend said, I'm going to go take a shower. So do you think you could do that for me? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. That way we could get out the door faster. So I went outside and I was just in like whatever I had slept in, kind of like some shorts and T-shirt, no shoes, anything like that. I'm just in the front yard watering the plants. A car drives by like on the way out of the neighborhood. It's like a a suburban area, you know, houses fairly close together. And the car drives by and I noticed it because I was 15 and I was getting ready to, you know, get my license. So I was paying attention to cars and I was like, oh, yeah, that might be a cool car that I would like, right? So drives by and I noticed it. And then maybe a minute or two later, it comes back and it pulls into the driveway. And I thought, maybe that's weird, but maybe it's someone that knows my friend's mom, something like that. So no immediate kind of red flags or anything like that. So a guy gets out of the car and he is very average looking guy, not scary. He's 
white male, um, mid thirties, late thirties. And he's wearing like a button down shirt. He's wearing jeans. He's wearing sneakers. And he has like a pamphlet in his arms or like a binder with some pamphlets in it. And he stayed further away from me than we are right now. And he said, hey, I saw you out here. I'm giving out these pamphlets today. And I saw you out here and I thought that I could give them to you or your parents home. And I said, well, this isn't my house. This is my friend's house. And he said, well, are her parents home? I said, well, her mom's not home. He said, okay, well, I'll just give them to you and you can just leave them for her if that sounds good. And I said, okay. So at that point, he was standing on my left and he reached in to hand me the pamphlets. And so he kind of reached in with his left arm and with his right arm, he put it around the right side of my neck and put a gun to the side of my neck. And so when that happened, you feel it. What is the first thing that pops in your mind? Just you, there's this moment of freezing. And I think I think we all were taught, you know, stranger danger and to kick and run and scream. But I didn't get any icky feelings before that. And so there's a split second where I just froze and I didn't know what to do. And he said, come with me. And I said, stop it. And he said, no, you're going to come with me and you're not going to fight. Um, you're going to come with me and you're going to get in my car. And so he walked me around to the driver's side of the car. He opened the driver's side door and it was a two-door car. He put the seat forward and he said, get in to the back seat. And I looked in the back seat and there was a large plastic container, storage container. And I said, where do I go? And he said, get in the container. And so I did. So I climbed in the back and got in the container and he loosely placed the lid on and uh, drove out of the driveway. So what was at that moment, having to sit inside of a storage container, what are you feeling? Immediately, I felt like I have to find a way to escape. It was immediate, immediate. I am going to wait on him to be complacent and I'm going to escape. And how am I going to do that? Well, I need to identify as much as I can about him because I don't know who he is. He's a stranger to me. So how can I identify him? So the first thing that I started doing was paying attention to the turns that he was taking so I could try to figure out where we were going. I felt the car merge onto the interstate. And at that point, I was it's like, well, I'm never going to know where we're going now. So what else? what else is there for me? So I memorized the serial number that was on the inside of the container. It's like, I'm going to memorize the songs that we're playing. Uh, I could smell cigarettes. And I, like, I remembered that and just everything. He didn't really talk to me, but everything that I heard and I felt, I just started kind of locking it into this vault, uh, cataloging information about him. Do you still remember the serial number? I don't. I, I did remember it for quite a while, but I don't remember it anymore. How did you know to do all of that? How did you know to start memorizing those things? Did Were you somebody that paid attention to true crime stories and survivor stories before this? No, no. I mean, I think I, I grew up watching like Unsolved Mysteries, but I wasn't like, oh, if I ever get kidnapped, this is what I will do. But I think that a lot of it was, it was kind of a divine intervention. It was like I was given some strength to kind of persevere through this. And, and I really, I'm, I'm a pretty strong-willed person, <laughs> and so I I did not want to let him make decisions about what my life was going to look like. So, uh, so I was trying to take the power back even then in any way that I could. So he drove for about 10 minutes maybe, 
And then he got off the interstate and he kind of pulled over like off the side of the road a little bit. And he opened the container and he said, I'm going to uh, put a gag in your mouth and restrain you. And so he did that and he told me to scream. And he said, "Okay, good. And then he put the container, the lid back on and drove maybe a minute. Uh, And I think that was when he pulled over. I'm sure that he was pulling over before he went into his apartment complex. And he was testing to see if anyone could hear me if I was screaming. So he got out of the car and he was gone for a minute and he came back and he said, I'm going to pick up the container with you in it and, you know, don't make any noise, anything like that. And he said he was continuously reminding me, I will always have a gun or I will have some kind of weapon. And if you don't follow my rules, then there will be a discipline. There will be a consequence. Did you believe him? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was I was five foot three. I was 110 pounds and he was a grown man. He was you know, 200 pounds, five foot 10, five eleven. Um, and so there were times when I was with him that I was that I thought, I wonder if I could just grab that weapon and fight him off. And I was like, no, I'm I'm little. That's that's probably not the best bet. So I just continued on with my plan. So um, he can he carried the container a short way, and he set it down. And I felt him drag it over concrete, and then like over the threshold. I could feel like that bump over the threshold into what I later found out was his apartment. When did he take the lid off? He left for a minute or two. And he came back and he took the lid off and he had changed his clothes. And he said, okay, I'm going to take the gag out of your mouth, but I want you to remember, you know, not to scream. And he said, you know, I'm going to ask you some questions. And he wrote down the answers to all the questions. So he took me into his bedroom and he had like a piece of like a legal pad with paper and was asking me questions and writing down the answers to all my questions. Like what? Like, how old are you? When was your last period? Do you have a boyfriend? Do you love him? Are you a virgin? Lots of questions about just who I was. Whose house were you at? Uh, What's her name? Where do you actually live? What's your address? Just all kinds of questions. Were you answering them honestly? Yes. Why do you think he was asking that? Because he was the kind of person that he stalked people. And he also kept, kept records of the people that he had interacted with previously. So I, we, never, we never found those notes. So they're still out there somewhere maybe. But um, yeah, that's, I think that, that was his documentation of what he was doing. That was his own demented way of documenting it. So he's asking you these questions. You're answering what happens next. So after that, he gives me some ground rules of, you know, this is while you're here, you have to listen to me. And if you don't, there will be consequences. And, and so then this begins an 18-hour ordeal of me being in his apartment where I was there being sexually assaulted multiple times over the 18 hours. Um, he also did things like made me watch pornographic movies and tell him what was happening Um, at one point he made me watch the news to see if anybody missed me, see if I was on the news, if anyone missed me. Um, He gave me drugs while I was there. What kind of drugs? Uh, Valium, and he made me smoke marijuana. Had you ever done drugs before that? No. Yeah. Was that scary? Um, I think that everything, it's very hard for me to think of how I was feeling in that time because my survival mechanism was very much a compartmentalized type of 
survival mechanism. So I wasn't really feeling any emotions for the most part while I was there. It was very task oriented and just locked those emotions in a box and didn't feel those. Um, at one point, he also put me back in the container. And that was that was probably the most fear and panic that I felt while I was there. And he did that because he said he had to make a phone call. Find out later he was calling his wife at that point. He had a wife. He had a wife. Yeah. When did you find out that he had a wife? I found that out much later after the fact. After I escaped, um, I found out that he had a wife. She was in Disney World with his mother. So, okay. So let's back up a little bit. He tells you, we want to watch the news to see if anybody misses you. Was there any new coverage at that point in the abduction about you missing? No. And so were you absolutely terrified that they were not talking about you missing? I knew that my family knew that something happened. They they never would have questioned if someone took me or if I ran away. That was never a question. But I was listed as a runaway. And runaways don't make the news within 18 hours. That's just I didn't expect to see anything on there. And I didn't see anything on there. Was there a moment where you had to decide, okay, I there's two ways I can go about this. I can make this guy my enemy or I can make this guy my friend. What did you end up choosing in order to try to survive? I definitely chose the path of least resistance, I would say, because I knew that where did this knowledge come from? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer, but I knew that he wanted me to be scared I knew that he wanted me to put up a fight. And I knew that, first of all, he wasn't going to get that from me. So I locked that in a box and I remained calm. And then I also knew that if I was complacent and I seemed like I was going along with the things that he wanted me to do without putting up a fight, I knew that he would at some point let his guard down a little bit. And I knew that that would be when I would escape. So I was. I was talking to him and I was trying to get information about him. So while he had been asking me questions during the time that I was there, I was asking him questions as well, kind of carrying on a conversation in this bizarre tableau that I was in and, you know, found out that he was in the Navy and there were, you know, pets and found out about his pets, like a guinea pig and some birds, lizards, things like that. He had lizards in the apartment? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, just like a wall of like cages with different animals. It's, it's very bizarre. Ooh. Um, yeah. It, the apartment was very like cluttered. It was a very small apartment. But I memorized everything that I could. And at one point, he was making himself dinner. And he said, you know, while you're here, you're going to have to eat while you're here. And he said, you know, if you don't eat, I'll make you eat. And I said, well, I can't really eat anything right now. But can I do something for you? And I ended up sweeping the floor in his kitchen. But I kind of used that as a guise. There were magnets on the refrigerator, like his doctor and his dentist. And so it's like, okay, well, here's some magnets. And I memorized who his doctor was and who his dentist was. And and just kind of locked that, continued just logging things into this internal vault um, while I was there. Another thing that I recognized while I was there is in the bathroom, there was like a hairbrush with long red hair. So I knew that a woman lived there. So before I even found out he had a wife, it wasn't really that big of a surprise that he had a wife because I said, okay, well, a woman lives here. There were also, you know, like feminine hygiene products and hairspray and like two toothbrushes. So I knew that someone else lived there. 
So I was just logging all of these things because I knew I would escape. And I knew that these would be the, the pieces of information that we used to identify him. There wasn't a part of you that thought, oh, my gosh, what if these female items belong to another victim? No, you know, I never thought about that. I, I feel like that's where my mind would <laughs> that's go. That's where you would have gone. Yeah. yeah. It's because you consume true crime, right? That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's but right. I didn't. Okay. So yeah. so you see these items um, and, and was your survival mode also just even in the moments of abuse to just, okay, let me just just be compliant, let him do what he wants, just keep calm? Yeah. Yeah. And just it was it was definitely the same thing through the whole the whole 18 hours that I was there, it was remain calm, be compliant, and then just shut off those emotions, really. Because I think I think that our body has a lot of really amazing survival mechanisms that are built in. And dissociation from trauma is a very, very common one when it's a very intense trauma. So my body recognized, okay, you can't deal with what's happening. So we're just going to shut that off. And so that's what enabled me to survive and to gather the information, remain calm, and then eventually escape. What were the sorts of things that he was saying to you during the abuse? He, I can't remember anything specific that he would say. He, he didn't really, he didn't really talk that much about like what was happening. It was just kind of like, this is what's going to happen now. And then it would happen, right? Um, so yeah, he just kind of talked me through. But I mean, the weirdest thing is that I guess now as an adult, when I look at other people who have been through, who have been exposed to serial killers or you know serial abusers, and they have these horrific stories. And I'm like, it was something terrible that happened to me, but he was he was not sadistic, I guess, um, while I was there in a way that, you know, it made it easier for me to be compliant, I guess. And so the sun sets. You're still there. Where is your mind as you're realizing I'm going to be spending the night with this man? So he had put me in the container to make that phone call. And I had a panic attack. And so after that, he takes me out and he gave me a Valium. And so that was at that point, that was getting close to kind of the end of the day. So I was, you know, I was little and I was getting drowsy. And so not long after that, he said, OK, we're going to go to bed. And so he restrained me to the bed. And I thought, OK, how did he restrain you? There, I had handcuffs on my wrists, and then there was, it's called like a quick link. Uh, it's like a, kind of like a carabiner, but with a screw on it. And that was around the middle of the handcuffs. And then that was attached to a rope that went like behind the bed. I guess it was probably tied to the bed frame. And then I had a restraint on my right leg that was also tied to the bed frame. Um, so I knew that while he was sleeping was probably going to be my best opportunity to escape. But... I couldn't stay awake then so because um, I had volume in my system. So I fell asleep and really maybe four or five hours later was when I woke up because that was very, very early in the morning was when I eventually fell asleep and then woke up again very early in the morning. So maybe six or seven is when I woke up and I was restrained in the bed. He was next to me asleep. And had you even I mean, what was it like waking up and be like, oh, my gosh, I forgot this is where I am. Yeah, I I think I don't I don't think my body ever really calmed down enough to forget where I was, 
Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that it was just that the drugs they had given me just kind of shut everything down. Um, So I woke up and I said, okay, this is it. This is the moment that I'm ready to escape. So he was asleep next to me. So I laid there kind of for a minute formulating my plan. How do we how do we get out of this? Um, So the first thing I knew that the first thing that I had to do was get my hands from right here because they were like right in front of my face. So I tried to unscrew the quick link with my fingers kind of reaching it down and I couldn't do that. So I actually had to kind of shimmy my wrists up to my teeth and I had to unscrew it with my teeth. And then I kind of slid those out and I slid my hands down my down my body and then I undid the restraints on my leg all while he is asleep, asleep next, next to, you. to me yeah was your heart just beating oh, yeah. out of your chest yes yeah and and I think it it just kept getting like more and more intense as I went right like it just I felt like my body was going to explode so so I undid the restraint on my leg I well where it was attached to the bed I still had it on my leg and then I got up and I was wearing one of his t-shirts and at that point, I was able to slide one of my wrists out of the handcuffs. Um, so I got that out. And then I found my shorts that I was wearing and put those on. And I'm like, surprised you put the shorts on. Right? I know. I was like, let me do it. <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, this is it, right? No, I get to the front door. And the front door is maybe not purposefully but because the apartment is so cluttered, it's more or less barricaded. So we have like the plastic container and then there's like a closet door that's open and there's like stuff hanging out of the closet. So I can't even open the front door without moving all of these noisy things. So I had to move the container then I had to like put the stuff in the closet and his bedroom was literally on the other side of the wall. So he's asleep and he's right on the other side of the wall. And I'm just thinking like, here we are. I finally got to the door and now I have this to deal with, right? So I push everything in the closet, unlock the door, shut the closet door, and like fling open the door. And his bed was right next to the window in the bedroom, and that window looked out on that front door. So I thought, I opened the door, and I ran. And all I could think of was, he's going to wake up, he's going to look out the window, and he's going to see me, and he's going to shoot me. And I just thought, oh, well. If he does, at least I'm out and at least someone will find him. So I just I just ran. I ran across the parking lot. There was a car driving across the parking lot. That tunnel vision that you hear about very much is like I could see the car and everything else just kind of like a blur. And so I ran for the car and I ran out in front of it and I and went around to the driver's side when they stopped. And I held my wrist up and I said, my name's Kara Robinson. And I was kidnapped and I escaped from that apartment. And I turned around and pointed to it. And I said, remember that apartment? And they said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, take me to the police. And they said, all right, get in, get in. And then they they did. They took me to the police. With the handcuff dangling. Dangling, yes. So you bust into this police department. Yes. And what are you saying? Are you screaming? Yeah. I. So I, I, I re- the way my memory works, I remember things kind of in snapshots and so the next thing that i remember is like sitting inside the police department so that that period in between kind of got fuzzy and so leading up to my documentary i went back and read like the incident reports and kind of refreshed my memory and those guys didn't even go in with me 
They just like dropped me off. I'm sorry. Can I just tell you right now <laughs> that if I'm driving my car and, and anyone comes up to me and says, I've been kidnapped or whatever, take me yeah. to the police, I am there every step of right. the way. Right. Yeah. And so uh, in, like looking at the documentary and all the stuff, they they said, I said, I guess we walked in. We walked into the police department and they were like, no. And I was like, what do you mean? No. They were like, no, you you walked in by yourself. And I was like, what? <laughs> so so I walked in and um, it was like a substation. So it wasn't like the the big primary department. And so there wasn't really anybody in there. So I'm like walking around looking for someone and someone calls out, can I help you? And there's like one guy in here. And so I tell him what happens and kind of the look on his face. It's that like, what am I hearing right now? What? Right. And so to me at the time, um, it felt like he didn't believe me, right? Which is one of the things that I, that gets misconstrued often is, oh, the, he didn't believe you. No, I, I felt like he didn't believe me, but he's sitting there like doing his reports or whatever, right? And and someone runs in. So, um, so I tell him what happened. I said, I'm Kara Robinson. I was kidnapped and I escaped. And the guys that brought me can tell you the apartment that I came from. They didn't remember it. Um, so then I have to give him all of this information. And, and what are the what's the information that you're te- you're just I'm saying the guy looked like this. He drove a green Trans Am Firebird. He um, has a woman that lives with him, has long red hair. The apartment looked like this. It was a bottom left apartment. And so he calls an investigator and the investigator comes and he says, well, the guys didn't remember the apartment. So do you think that you could go back and identify it? I'm like, all these apartments look all the same, but sure. And my parents had been called, but they're not there yet. Yeah. So were you even like, wait, let me see my parents. Yeah. Were you willing to go th- yeah. then? Yeah. I was like, OK, let's go. So it wasn't very far. So uh, so we went over there. We see like a guy, like a maintenance guy kind of driving around on a golf cart. And I tell him, you know, this is the car. This is what the guy looks like. All the same information that I'd given them. And he said, I'm pretty sure I know exactly what apartment that is. Because and they have to go in and do the work inside exactly. the apartments. Yeah. So he's like, I'm pretty sure I know what apartment that is. And so then that's when they took me back to the station. And that's when I saw my mom. And then she took me to the hospital for a sexual assault exam. So with the sexual assault exam, how hard is that when you're a survivor and you just endured getting raped? Yeah, I, it was very uncomfortable. I had never had like a pelvic exam before. That was my first pelvic exam, right? So um, I I remember sitting in there and you have to tell them all the details. So when you get an exam, the nurse has to know everything that happened because they have to know what to test. They're not going to scrape underneath your fingernails or they're not going, you know, they need to know where they need to swab if there's maybe fluids on your body. So I have to tell them all of those details. And my mom is sitting there with me. And I just thought, I don't want her to hear this. I don't want her to hear all the details of what just happened. Like, I don't want to tell anybody, but I especially don't want my mom to hear it. So I asked her to leave. And then they did this exam, which is it's very invasive, but very necessary if there's going to be prosecution. So and you uh, were wearing his shirt. Do they take his shirt? Yes. Give you something else like is his shirt evidence? Yes. They took everything that I was wearing is evidence. And then, you know, then they give you like hospital clothes, which is like like extra large sweatsuit and hospital socks, which is super fun when you're a tiny little 15-year-old. Um, 
And while I was there, well, actually, while I was waiting for the exam, an investigator came and brought me a lineup. And he said, which one of these is is your offender is the guy that kidnapped you. And I immediately pointed him out. And so they had identified him from the information that I had given them. And they went apparently during this time, they went and searched to kind of try to search his apartment and he had run. So he was gone. So he's on the run. When you get home that day from the hospital, what is the first thing that you do? You know, it's funny because I just wanted I just wanted people to treat me normal. I didn't want I didn't want anything to be weird. So, you know, I just went home and went back to it's like I just want to go back to doing whatever I normally would do, right? Like I wanted to hang out with my boyfriend or but I mean, I, I couldn't. There were police and victims advocates because I was kidnapped from one county and recovered in the adjoining county. And so we had two agencies and he's on the run. So, I mean, there was no there was really no downtime to even do anything because there was yeah. law enforcement nonstop. That's what I was wondering, because it's 2002. So we don't have cell phones yet. There's no social media. So I, I was wondering if you were just parked in front of your ho- house phone and just making calls to your friend that you were with. Hey, this is what happened to your boyfriend. This is what happened. Like, what did you do? They were at the hospital. So they were waiting on me whenever I came out. So when I came out of getting the exam, um, there was there were a bunch of people in the waiting room that were waiting for me. So my boyfriend and my friend and I'm pretty sure they came to my house afterwards. Was were you just dying to take a shower? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's probably the best shower that I've ever had. Was it weird when you finally went to bed and went to sleep that night after everything in your own bed and you're like, wow, I did it. I got out. I don't remember it being weird then. Um, I did have some weird moments, uh, maybe a week or two afterwards, where, you know, in a in a store and a guy was in the same section as us, like three different areas of the store, and I had like a panic attack. But really, I had just shoved all of those emotions just so far down that I was like, okay, yeah, like, look, it didn't affect me. Like, I can talk to you about it. I can tell you all the things about it. But look, it didn't affect me. So just treat me normal, guys. Like, let's just go right back to normal, even though this guy's on the run, right? And we don't know where he's at. And I have law enforcement in and out of my house. Um, but I'm normal. Just Let's just go back to normal. How was it being touched just in general, not even in a sexual way, just hugging and everything? Was it hard for you to go back to normal touching after being abused? You know, I think that's a funny that's a funny thing to ask because I think that the perception for a lot of people is that I liked it before and then afterwards I didn't. You're never a physical touch person. Uh-uh. I'm not either. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I think that that was kind of the time that I was like, okay, like I don't like this. That was kind of part of me learning to say like to set that boundary, basically, right? Like a healthy boundary would be like, I actually don't like that. So I'm just not going to do it anymore. Right. Um, So I think that as much as it was terrible thing that happened, you know, there were lots of positives along the way. When did the investigators tell you, Kara, we went inside of his apartment. You will not believe what we found and tell us about what they found. Yeah, it was pretty quick. It was, I think it was within that like 24 hours after I had escaped that they told me they went into the apartment and they found a locked footlocker in his bedroom. And when they opened it, they found newspaper clippings and like a bath mat and some clothing, just very bizarre things to be in like 
a locked footlocker in your bedroom. And the newspaper clippings were about three homicides that were in 1996 and 1997 in uh, Spotsylvania, Fredericksburg area of Virginia. And your abduction happened where? Columbia, South Carolina. So they see these newspaper clippings. And then at that point, what are the investigators thinking? They immediately called the sheriff of that county. They said, Sheriff, we got something here that we think you may want to know about. And so they immediately reached out to the Silva Lisk task force in Virginia and let them know. And they they came down pretty quickly and started collecting evidence and even, you know, flew evidence up to Quantico for the FBI to analyze like the trunk lid of one of his vehicles. Tell us about the other victims that had been the newspaper clippings had been clipped out that your abductor had. Who were they and what was similar about their cases to yours? So his first known victim, and I say known because it's my belief that he had other victims. We just don't know about them. Uh, his first known victim was Sophia Silva. She was 16 years old, Spotsylvania. Um, she was taken middle of the day from her front porch. No one saw anything. No one heard anything. Her sister was in the house. And there was really no – they they did arrest a guy in that case. Um, and then while he was in jail, Katie and Kristen Lisk, two sisters from Spotsylvania, were kidnapped. Both of the sisters? Both of them. Yeah. They were kidnapped from their front yard after school. And um, again, no one no one saw anything. No one heard anything. Unfortunately, um, Sophia was found um, a few weeks after she disappeared. She was found um, in a body of water and she was dead. And um, then Katie and Kristen, they were missing for a few days and then they were found as well. So in a body of water. When you found that out, did you think that was what was going to happen to me? You know, it took a really long time for me to, I guess, internalize that because my captor told me while he had me, he said, I'm going to have you for a few days. And when I'm done, when I'm done with you, I'm going to let you go somewhere. And then you get to decide if you're going to go to law enforcement. You're always known as the girl who was raped. That's what he said to me. Right. And so I thought, well, maybe I would have been different, right? Like, we all want to think that we're different, and especially when we're teenagers, right? And so I thought, well, maybe maybe he wasn't going to kill me. And then over the years, I've slowly begun to realize, like, he was a serial killer. His intention was to kill me. After you're rescued, how long does it take for them to find this guy? What happens with him? So they go to his apartment. He is gone and they search his apartment. They're trying to find him. They get his mom and his his sister and his wife back into town. They interview them. They're like, we don't know where he is. And then his sister kind of hangs around afterward. And she's like, yeah, so I got him a hotel room in Orangeburg. <laughs> yeah. And so investigators, you know, get all their stuff. They go down to this hotel he's gone so um they start pinging his cell phone because he did have a cell phone and so they start you know pinging it so that they can figure out where he's going and he's moving towards the like um sarasota area so that sarasota florida kind of the gulf coast of florida and 
he had set up a meeting with his other sister. He was supposed to be meeting his sister at, I think it was an IHOP, I'm pretty sure. And he, they set up, you know, a stop. They were going to get him when he came into the IHOP. He came in, he saw the police, flew out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so there was a, a chase. I, I've heard, I obviously was not there. I've heard that speeds up to 100 miles an hour. And then they put out stop sticks. They deployed stop sticks and blew out the tires in his car. And they sent in the canine. And when they sent in the canine, it bit him. And at some point um, of, hit, of it biting him and maybe letting go, at some point during that altercation with the dog, he shot himself. Who told you that your offender had killed himself? I think it was my parents. I'm pretty sure it was my parents that told me. Because they had been told by law enforcement. What was your immediate reaction? I was really mad. I was very, very angry because I was strong-willed. And I wanted him to know that he made a mistake picking me. And and that was the thing that I said immediately. As I said, I wanted him to know that I was his biggest mistake. I wanted him to sit in a courtroom across from me and see me and go, she outsmarted me. Uh, as time has passed, however, I've realized that probably was for the best because he's not in a jail somewhere. He uh, never had to sit in a courtroom with me. I never had to sit in a courtroom and tell a whole bunch of people what happened to me. Uh, but I do wish that I, it's it's complicated because I still do wish that he were here in some ways because I do believe he had other victims that we don't know about. Why do you think that? Because it was too, it was too easy for him to take Sophia. Um, so he was previous. And Sophia was the first, the first victim that we know of. Yeah. So he, her sister was in the house and she was sitting on the front porch, like doing her homework, suburban area, like people are getting off work and no one saw or heard anything. And the only thing that we know of that he for sure did was he had an indecent exposure and like 85 or 86. And that was when he was in the Navy and it was in Florida. And so there's just a lot of escalation between an indecent exposure and a kidnapping and murder. Have you found anything out about his childhood or what may have led him to becoming this way? Yeah, he had a, a some people have said he had an abusive relationship with his father and what the heck happened with his wife she she had no idea that her husband was a serial killer or do you believe that she did know something no she had no idea but she was also like 17 when they were married when Mm -hmm. they first got married you mean oh no when they first got married she was 16 oh my gosh yeah so she was she was also you know she was very young what impact did your kidnapping have on you and the friend whose house you were at you know, we stayed we stayed great friends for quite a while. We just eventually, you know, it's it's been almost twenty years, it's been nineteen years. Um, so we eventually kind of we're not as close as we used to be. But um, it, I feel like it really seemed to affect the people that were in the periphery almost more than it affected me. Why? I, I think because I was I was in that trauma, and so. I was able to dissociate like my body just shut that off. But everyone else, um, like my mom specifically, my friend, my boyfriend at the time, like they all were very, very affected. When you say disassociate, do you mean actual diagnosis of DID? 
No, just just shutting off that emotion. So it's like it's like me telling what happened to someone else that it's just totally separated from me. What happened with the boyfriend that you were dating at the time? How do you go back to being a normal teenager, dating, going on dates and everything after that? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> I I eventually pushed him away because um, I I as I've realized as I've gotten older um, that I don't I didn't feel that's I, one of the longest effects of my trauma that took me the longest to see was that I did not feel a depth of feeling for a very long time. So part of my, I guess, coping mechanisms were I pushed I pushed him away. How soon after your rescue did you go back to school? So that was in June and school started in August. So and you went back. Yeah. Were you treated differently? Yeah, it was it was pretty frustrating from, you know, people starting rumors and saying, oh, I was at the hospital when Kara came in. And every time a man would come in, she would <clears throat> she would try to climb the walls and freak out. And I was like, I don't even know you. Right. <clears throat> so there was a lot of people kind of trying to hop on like this popularity, right, that I had in school. They're like, oh, yeah, that's my friend. I was there at the hospital. And it was it was so bizarre. I always feel like this happens when people get famous for any reason, whether it's good or bad. And, you know, you, you can argue from that happening, you all of a sudden became a local celebrity. Right. And so everybody wants to have a part of that. And people act like they knew you and they never even talked to you or hung out with you. Right. Exactly. And and I think the most frustrating thing for me was that I was open to talk about it. So people would, oh, did you hear what happened? Like, did you hear what happened to Kara? Instead of just coming to me and just getting the story. Right. That was very, it was a very frustrating, I mean, it's frustrating. High school's frustrating anyway. <laughs> so, but that was especially difficult for me. How did you deal with the trauma? What was your recovery process like? Well, it didn't affect me, Alex. It didn't <laughs> affect me for 20 years almost. You I, just totally shut yeah. it off, never talked about it, nothing. You didn't go to therapy, nothing? No. No drugs or alcohol to numb the pain? No. Because I didn't have pain, because I didn't feel the pain. So for a very long time, I I would say almost prided myself in being like, oh yeah, this thing happened, but it didn't affect me. It's really only been in like the last five or 10 years that I've realized what that compartmentalization and what that dissociation from those emotions has done, right? So my coping mechanism, whenever I get stressed, is to tune out, turn off emotions. And you can't do that with the people that you care about. And I have kids. and You really can't do that with your children, right? So I realized that I was not feeling a depth of emotions. And the only emotion that I was feeling with any regularity was anger. I was just mad all the time. I was like, oh, my trauma might have affected me. What do you know? And so I've really only started dismantling, uh, I guess, the effects within, I would say, the last three to five years. What did you decide to do with your life once you graduated high school after going through all this? So it was a slow process. I, I don't know if it was like one day I decided necessarily, but I started working part time at the sheriff's department that investigated my case, actually. Really? Yeah. So I started the summer after. I formed like a relationship with the sheriff and he was like a second father to me. And he said, well, you want to come work at the sheriff's department? So I was doing administrative stuff and I did that all through high school and I did it through college as well. So I was working um, 
and victims assistance, doing like data entry and stuff like that. And then I also worked in youth arbitration, just kind of like when kids get in trouble in school, giving them like a plan to get out of trouble. And so um, I did that all through high school and college. And then when I was getting ready to graduate, the sheriff was like, well, you know, Kara, if you want to work with kids, you could be a school resource officer. He's like, I mean, you don't have to, but you'll always have a job here if you want it, doing whatever it is that you want. And I said, okay. So I went to the academy and I was like, oh, I actually really like this. I enjoyed being in law enforcement. And um, so then I graduated the academy, was a school resource officer. And then I went on to investigate uh, sex crimes and and child abuse cases. And then I went into victim's assistance. Okay, so this is really interesting to me that you decided to go into victim abuse and in and, and child sex crimes and stuff. Seeing those pictures, reading the stories wasn't a trigger for you at all? No, no. But, and this is kind of one of the things that it has historically been the most frustrating for me is that everyone has always tried to protect me. Mm. And they always have said, oh, you need counseling. You have to go to counseling. Don't tell me what I need. I think that's one of the biggest lessons that we can learn to support survivors. Like, don't tell them what you think they need. Um, And then when I was at the sheriff's department, everyone tried to protect me. They were like, oh, well, we won't give you the really hard cases that might trigger you. I'm like, I'm fine. (laughs) I just want to I wanted to work like I wanted to work these cases. And so I would take. You know, these cases that would be like a mandated reporter reporting that, a you know, 14 year old came to the Department of Health for birth control and they're a mandated reporter. Right. So they have to report that. And oh, also there was a DNA test that got taken. OK, well, let's. So I would actually work those cases that would normally just be cases that would be closed and actually got like one of my first arrests on a case like that. So how long did you do that before meeting your now husband? So I was working, let me think, what was I doing when I met him? I was working in, I think I was in youth arbitration. That No, I was a school resource officer then. <laughs> I was a school resource officer then. And he was he was um, working at the same agency as me. And so we had a fundraiser that I had planned and he came by at work and um, and he saw me and he's like, who's that girl? I want to know who I want to know her. So um, that was in. Let's see. I was actually dating him when I went to the. So there's two different classes of law enforcement. So um, I was dating him when I went to the full academy. So there's like a half academy and there's like a full academy. So um, pretty much pretty much immediately. And now you guys have two kids. We have two boys. Yep. I love that. And so what are you doing now? Are you still working in law enforcement? So I stopped working in law enforcement when I had my boys because my husband was traveling a lot. And so I wanted to be home with them. So I stayed home with them. Unfortunately, my certification expired. And so now what I do is I am a public speaker. I do this. I go and speak to law enforcement or, you know, groups and tell them a lot about what it means to be a survivor. Um, how What to cr- does it mean to be a survivor? It means that... You can be affected by what happened, but it means that you choose what happens. So whenever we think of someone who's a victim, right, if you're a victim of a carjacking or you're a victim of a burglary, right, someone comes in to your life and they take something away from you. And so to transition to a survivor, it means that you've taken the power back. So it means that no one's taking anything from you. 
you're taking it from them. You're taking that power back and you're deciding where you go now. You're deciding if you use that experience as something that makes you weaker or if you use it as something that makes you stronger. So that's what it means to be a survivor. And so I explain that to groups who that's poignant for them. And and then especially I I love working with law enforcement and trying to give them examples of the little things that they can do and say that really empower victims to become survivors, because often if a victim does disclose, one of the first people that they talk to when they disclose is they're going to talk to law enforcement. Um, and it can be very frustrating because a small percentage of sexual assaults actually end in a conviction, very small percentage. And so as law enforcement, it's it can be tough to navigate that language. How old are your sons and when did you start talking to them about or have you talked to them about your your abduction? I've had to because they, you know, the really fun thing about raising kids at this time um, is there's so much technology. So they like asked Google one day, who is Kara Chamberlain? Oh, gosh. And I was like, that is not the information that I wanted to give you. So they have they've known um a little bit as much as is age appropriate. So they're five and almost eight, just a couple weeks out from eight. And so most of what they know right now is that when I was younger, someone took me from my mommy and daddy and that I escaped. And that's how I went on to work in law enforcement. So that's about all they know right now. What do you teach them about abduction and strangers and things like that? So I think that we all... We all were taught, like I said, we were taught stranger danger, right? So the statistics are actually pretty low on the number of people who are kidnapped or assaulted by a stranger. It's much, much more likely that it's going to be someone that you know, especially if you're a child. Um, So most of my education and the things that I talk to them about, it revolves around boundary setting, right? Like if someone, and it starts so young that okay, grandma wants a kiss, but you don't want to kiss her. Well, grandma doesn't have to get a kiss. You can you can set that boundary. You're allowed to tell adults no when it's about your body, right? So we have conversations about that or even, oh, you're tickling your brother and he seems like he's having fun, but he said stop. So you're going to stop right now. Um, so a lot of boundary setting. That's the first thing that we do because I think um, – for for children especially they need they need to know that to prevent them being victims but i also i mean i'm raising boys they can be victims but i also don't want them to be an offender one day so they need to know that no means no so even like my 5 year old is really grabby and he'll just mama and i'm like i don't like the way that feels and he's like ha, ha 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 and i'm like no so teaching them that no means no and what that looks like um so there's a lot of those little things that we work on right now kind of a weird question but it is something that i've been thinking about just with the pandemic and everything like that how have mask mandates felt for you as somebody who has literally been bound and gagged forcibly terrible absolutely terrible um i have had very few actual panic attacks in my life. And um, most recently, I had one actually a few days ago. And it was because we had mask mandates removed and now they're back. And so I had to wear a mask 
And it just it caused me a spin out and it lasted a couple of days. And um, I get a lot of panic because when I was put back in that container, I could not breathe. I had an anxiety attack. He put the lid on the container, put a blanket over it. And I was just sitting there going, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. So my body heard that. So anytime my breathing is restricted, even if it's swimming, I panic when I swim. Um, So putting a mask on, it's very anxiety inducing for me. Have you spoken about that to any just city officials or anybody just explaining, hey, as a survivor, do you understand how this feels? No, but I probably should. I just am like, I'm just not going to do it because we don't we don't really have any like official mandates. And if someone says anything to me, I'm like, I can't. I can't. It causes me issues. Well, I think about, you know, masks like that. I think about plastic straws. People don't think about people with disabilities. You know, all these restaurants getting rid of plastic straws, for example. And then they can't drink without that. Right. And so I also think about that. There's all these little things and we do not realize. Or people that are disabled, you know, with hearing how much masks have been horrible torture for them because they can't read lips and they have no idea what anyone's saying. Yeah. Nobody thinks about this. And I've actually noticed that. My husband and I were talking about that a few days ago because I was speaking at a conference and when people were talking to me and they had masks on I was like I don't know what you're saying because I didn't realize how much I was relying on reading people's lips when I was in a noisy room so yeah it's it's something that I think um, often is not considered and I mean I get everyone's trying to do what makes them feel safe but also we just have to give more grace to people we have to understand that people are different (laughs) Okay, so if someone ever finds themselves restrained by a captor, what can they do? I hesitate to give advice only because I think that we we all like to think that we would be able to remain calm and use any of the things that we may have picked up on, but our body really kicks into survival mode and you might you might just freeze. You know, there, we all know about fight or flight, right? But there's also freeze and fawn. So, you know, I think, I, I think that if I would have fought when he first tried to take me, there was a neighbor in the backyard. He saw me get into the car. He probably would have came out and fought the guy off. But also, what if he would have shot me? Somebody saw you get into the car? Yeah. Yeah. Well, explain that. They, why did they think that was normal? Because I wasn't kicking or screaming and they couldn't see the gun. So he's like, oh, yeah, she got in a car with a guy in a green Trans Am Firebird. So really, it just depends on the situation. Everybody is different for yeah. what could help you survive. Yeah. And I think it's hard to give advice because we all we know that statistically, right, if some a stranger is trying to kidnap you and you put up a fight they're they probably are going to let you go statistically. But what if I give someone that advice and they don't, right? I, I have a hard time giving that advice. So, I mean, statistics say fight them off if you can, make a bunch of noise. But if you don't and you can't, that's okay because our bodies really take over, right? Like I I handled it pretty well, pretty well, right? And did the best that I could. But if I would have fought initially, I probably wouldn't have gotten taken at all. So, but I did, but I didn't have that that wherewithal. You can't control that automatic reaction that happens within your body. Has there been a time where you sharing your story has prompted somebody to tell you that your story kind of saved their life? 
not that it saved their life necessarily, but I get messages regularly of people saying, your story has helped give me hope um, to get through what I'm going through or people that you know, disclose something terrible that happened to them. Or my favorite messages are the ones that I get from someone that I spoke to at a conference. They're like, hey, I used that thing that you told me to say to a victim. And, you know, it was a child sexual assault case. And I used the words that you gave me. And when I said those things, she smiled. What are the things that you should say to a victim? I believe you. Don't say you're sorry because that makes them feel like, you feel sorry for them. Um, but I believe you is one of the strongest things that you can say and say, I'm proud of you. Like, I know this is hard, but thank you for trusting me with this information. And don't offer your advice unless they specifically ask for it. And don't try to relate something you went through to whatever they're going through. Just kind of let them take the lead because really, If we want to help enable people to become survivors, they have to take their power back. And some of the first things that they can do to take their power back are make decisions about what's happening with their life. So, you know, saying you have to get counseling or you have to do this or you have to do that. That can be very just disempowering for victims because they've just had all of their power taken away from them. Right. So those are some of the things that can really help. Speaking of what hurts and helps victims, how does it feel when popular true crime podcasts or other people share your story without you? They don't invite you to tell it, but they tell it. I think it's a very it's a very tricky world that we live in right now because um, legally they can share my story. It's out there. Ethically, I just it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to those of us who have been through hard things when someone else tells our story. Um, first of all, no one's going to get it right. It's my story. And I mean, I even I'm like, oh, I think it was this person, right? Because it's been so long. So it's just like the game of telephone. They're going to get things wrong, which is very hard for most of us. Um, and then also, like, I'm not that hard to find, like, at least reach out to me and send me a message say hey I'm thinking about covering your story like I just want to let you know because it's kind of the worst thing in the world to have all these people pop up and be like oh I just heard about your story on such and such podcast or such and such YouTube video and I'm like oh okay well I hope they got all the details right because um so it's it's a little difficult when other people more or less take ownership over something that is very personal So speaking of sharing your story, something I think is so freaking cool is that Oxygen decided to make a movie documentary about your abduction. So talk about that process. Who reached out to who? How did that happen? And how did that feel to have like a professional cable network share your story? Yeah. So this was actually I decided I wanted to make the documentary. So I reached out to Elizabeth Smart. So she and I... I would die. Listen, Kara, (laughs) tell her to come on the spillover because she's also incredible. I mean, I have her number. (laughs) So I reached out to her and I said, you know, I want to get into public speaking. And I know that the first thing that I need to do is tell my story in a way that I can point people back to it and I can be proud. And so she hooked me up with a production company, Marwar Productions, and they just been fantastic. So we put together the reel. We started pitching it 
March of 2020 was when we started pitching it to networks. Oh, no. So then was there a huge delay? Oh, yes. It took so much. It took two years to get it to air from like when we first filmed the pitch to air date. It was almost two years to the date. Um, so then we started pitching it to networks. Oxygen wanted it. And then we filmed in February and it aired. The initial air date was September 26th. So it's been amazing. I'm executive producer on it. So Woo! yeah, so I had full control, which is just not something that I'm used to. I've shared my story in different places. And I was actually speaking to one of one of the producers and I said, I'm still surprised when I watch it that you guys actually and he's like, that we listened? And I was like, Yeah, I'm surprised that you listened to the things that I wanted. So it's it's very unusual that we actually have control, but I'm very proud to say that I did a big part of, you know, putting that together and very proud of it. What was the most important thing that they got right? I think the thing that they got just like jam up right is the way they told the story because like I mentioned the people that seemed most affected were the people in the periphery so I think so often especially in the true crime community um, when we share these stories we focus on the victim of the crime but they're not the only person that's affected by that so we had first person interviews from you know my parents my boyfriend at the time even law enforcement and you see how affected they all are. And I think that that is just such a great way to tell a story from all of these first person uh, narratives. And you get to see how it affects so many people. Was filming this documentary the first time that you had to reach back out and speak to these old friends or like the ex-boyfriend and things like that? Yeah, I, I've never asked anyone to do these things for me. So before. what was that like to be like, hey, remember me? <laughs> yeah. like, of course I remember. Yeah. Uh, you know, I actually, I I called him and I said, hey, um, would you be willing to do this? He's like, absolutely. Aww. Yeah, no questions asked. And, and that was another reason why it was important for me to be such a big part of this project because I never wanted to ask people. It's like the families in Virginia and the law enforcement and the task force people in Virginia, they never have really shared anything with media. They've been very private. And so in order to tell my story, I have to tell that side of the story. And I thought, well... If anybody's going to tell this story and they're going to do it right, like maybe they will trust me to do it the right way and maybe they'll actually tell the story. And they did. OK, so what is the documentary called and where can people watch it? It is called Escaping Captivity, the Kara Robinson story. It is on Oxygen. It's streaming on their website. It's on NBC Universal, um, Amazon and on Hulu. And it also airs like sporadically on Oxygen. And where can people find you to follow you and and keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, I am probably the most active on Instagram. I post on there pretty much every day. Um, but I also have a website. So my website is CaraRobinsonChamberlain.com. And then all of my social media handles are at CaraRobinsonChamberlain as well. Kara, thank you so much for sharing your story Absolutely. on The Silver. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. You know, every time I hear of stories like this, I wonder how people handle themselves the way they do. Survivor stories literally never cease to amaze me. I feel like I would just panic. And panicking seems like the natural reaction, right? Anger is also a natural response. And it really is justified to be angry at a person who has committed a crime against you, especially to this degree. But Kara's story paints a much different picture. I don't know how you stay calm when you're faced with a life-threatening ordeal, when you are literally a prisoner. And I don't know how you forgive a monster after the fact. But she managed 
to do both and has gone on to live the most extraordinary life. There's just a lot of hope and strength in Kara's story. And my hope is that you're all able to take away a piece of that, as well as some knowledge of what to do if you're ever in a life-threatening situation. All right, fam, if you stand the spillover and you want to see it continue to thrive, then pretty please commit already and click subscribe and then write me a five-star review so I know it's real, but actually any review helps and it lets me know what topics and guests to cover next. Plus, this season is just going to keep giving all the conservatives, so you don't want to miss an episode. You can find new episodes of The Spillover every Thursday at 9 p.m. Pacific and midnight Eastern on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you actually want to watch the episodes, all you have to do is go to Poplitics's YouTube, subscribe there, or watch on TPUSA Live at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fridays. I'm Alex Clark, and this is The Spillover. Love you. Mean it. Bye. Big dog status, 